In your Bibles, go ahead and make your way to the book of James. Uh, you'll find James, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, you will find that on page 1011. We are beginning a new sermon series today that will last us almost up until Easter. Uh, between now uh, and Palm Sunday, we're going to walk through the book of James. This is a letter uh, in the New Testament written by James, the brother of Jesus. It was written sometime in the mid-40s A.D., uh, and that makes it possibly the earliest part of the New Testament that we have uh, recorded for us. James writes this letter primarily to an audience of Jewish Christians who are scattered among churches somewhere in the neighborhood of Palestine and Syria. And in memorable images and immensely practical directives... Throughout this letter, James emphasizes the active role that we are called to play as God's people in the world. Many of you in the room, particularly many of the women uh, in the room, are very familiar with this book because you've been studying it together over uh, these past five or six months or so. And if that's you, I I hope that studying this together as part of a sermon series will only supplement that, uh, will only further deepen your appreciation for and your observance uh, and practice of all that James writes in this letter. And then as I hope that we'll all see, James's words tie in really well uh, with our focus on mercy and justice issues that will begin next month, uh, next week even, in the month of January. It's also going to dovetail really well with our observance of Lent as we get there a couple months from now. About halfway through this letter, uh, James starts to talk a lot about the brevity of life, that our lives are a mist. Uh, And he also starts to warn us about the dangers of worldliness. And that ties in really well uh, as we observe Lent, as we think about uh, the brevity of our lives, our own mortality, and we think about repentance and the need to to, uh, stay away from the things of of the world. But before we get to any of that, James actually starts this letter with something very different. He starts this letter talking about trials. Trials. And he's writing here to this group of persecuted, suffering people. And immediately after his introduction, which is very short, he tells them to count all of their trials as joy. Now there are helpful and unhelpful moments to wield the truths of Scripture. In uh, his memoir, A pastor named Eugene Peterson writes about how when his parents died, there was another pastor that came and offered him some cliche phrases, some some platitudes uh, about how he should rejoice in that moment, uh, about how God was working those things together for good. And Eugene Peterson, as a pastor himself, was reflecting about that and shared, I believe it was with his daughter, something like, I hope I've never done that to someone else. And as a pastor, I hope I never do that that to someone else. James here says, count your trials as joy. Uh, That is not a truth that we should wield haphazardly. It's not something that we should say to someone in the depth of their despair in the midst of a trial. Though it's true, though it's part of the word of God, saying that in that very moment is almost always unhelpful, even unkind to a person going through that. And often, the impulse that we have to say something like that comes from not knowing what to say, uh, comes from perhaps a misunderstanding of what James is actually teaching here, or sometimes it even comes from a a place of dismissal. We're unwilling to help that person bear the weight of the trial, of the burden that they are carrying. 
So before we start this morning, I want to caution you against that. Don't wield the precious truths of Scripture in a careless way, in a calloused way, in a surfacey kind of way. But at the very same time, as we've now come to the end of a year and are on the verge of a new one, I find myself reflecting a lot about this year that has been and the one that is about to come. And if you're like me at all, these are moments of the year where I am seeking and desperately need renewal in perspective for life. Which at least in in my humble opinion then makes this morning an incredibly appropriate and even important moment to consider the truth that James writes here. That when we meet trials of, of all kinds, of various kinds, we should count them all as joy. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is the book of James, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, Compel us all simply to take you at your word. Guide us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. And do not let us get away from your word without being caught up by its promises and powerful joy. We pray this for our sake, Father, and for those whom we love. In the name of Jesus, amen. Though they might seem like random tidbits of wisdom, though they might seem disjointed, there really is a theme that holds together these opening verses of the book of James. And that theme is trial. So the four things that we will consider this morning, the purpose of trials, wisdom for trials, the trials of poverty and wealth, and trials versus temptation. 
So first, let's talk about the purpose of trials. We will only be able to count trials as joy if we are confident that God is present in them and that He is doing something good through them. And what James says here is that trials, the testing of our faith, produces steadfastness. The full effect then of steadfastness is that we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So right from the get-go, notice something really important here. James is able to count trials as joy in light of two things. A clear view of the end goal and a long view of getting there. A clear view of the end goal and a long view of getting there. To understand the purpose of trials, we really have to back up and consider the purpose of life itself. There's no purpose in trial if there's no ultimate purpose in life. So what is the end goal? What, what are we supposed to do with the time that is allotted to us on this earth? And what are our lives supposed to look like when we're done? If the end goal is comfort, or if it's leisure, or if it's well-being, as I think many in our culture might define it, then trials and suffering and hardship will only ever be obstacles and feel like obstacles in our lives. That's the only possible category that trials fit into if we're aiming for comfort and for ease. But, if the end game is to become perfect and complete, which is James's language for spiritual maturity or wholeness, a life that reflects the very glory of God, a life that is conformed to the image of Jesus, if that's the end goal, well then, trials aren't obstacles at all. In fact, trials are the opposite. They are obstacles to life. They are the substance of real life. They are the road on which you and I travel and by which God is bringing us to our destination. Now that doesn't mean that you and I are happy about it every step of the way. It's actually one of the worst ways to misunderstand James' words and to wield this precious truth of Scripture in an unhelpful way. It does great damage to the witness of the sincerity of the heart of God when Christians interpret these words to mean that you have to be happy all the time. Not only that, it does great damage to your own soul. Why? Because you start to deny, the, deny reality and attempt to short-circuit the real deep work that God is doing in your life through trial. I don't know what your experience uh, or paradigm of this has been throughout your life and the different places and people that you've been around. But some of the unhealthiest, some of the most immature people in the world walk around with a smile plaster on their face all the time. When James says, count it all joy, he has the long view in mind. He's not condemning an emotional response of grief or lament or sorrow or sadness. He's not calling Christians to a shallow and cheap substitute for joy. He's saying that with a long view, as steadfastness has its full effect, trials are leading you to full and complete maturity in Christ. So this is a really important distinction that we would be wise to get um, as Christians in this world. It is not that everything that happens to you in this life is good. It's that everything that happens to you in this life is used by God for good. Not everything that happens to you in this life 
is good. And if you think that's the case, if you talk that way, you'll sound like a lunatic. You'll sound like, you'll sound like a crazy person saying that everything that has happened to you or someone else in this life is good. It's not that it is good. It's that God uses it for good. Steadfastness. The word that James uses here, the the etymology of that word means a person successfully carrying a heavy load for a long time. Is that not an apt description for life? Like if we are actually living with our eyes open, with our hearts open, this life is heavy. It's a heavy load. Whether it's in your own life, or the lives of people around you, people that you love, people you feel some semblance of responsibility to care for, there will be non-stop trial and testing and suffering. And the longer you live, the more you see, the heavier and heavier that load gets. The only thing that can adequately prepare you to successfully carry that is trial and suffering and hardship. We, we don't get to prepare for life in an incubator. We jump right in. And we are prepared, we are made steadfast by beginning to endure trial and by learning in the midst of those trials to really believe that underneath the difficult circumstances, God is making us more and more steadfast, leading to maturity and wholeness through our union with Christ. That, and only that, is the reason to rejoice. That is the reason to count all of your trials as joy. Not because of the circumstances, but because of what God is doing through them and underneath them. Personally, this has been a radical reorientation for me in the last decade or so. When I used to think about spiritual maturity and growth in Christ-likeness, I thought almost exclusively in terms of spiritual disciplines. Bible study, prayer, sitting under good teaching. I thought about mentors and resources and other kinds of self-selected means to pursue growth. All of those things are really good and really important. If you're someone that considers New Year's resolutions and you're thinking about that right now, I would commend all of those things to you. All of those things have been means of significant growth in my life. But do you know what's brought more? Suffering. Trial. Being thrown underneath the heavy load of life and learning to trust that God is at work in the midst of it. That has moved the needle of my spiritual maturity far more than anything I have selected for myself. To those of you who are younger in the room, what I would plead with you is to learn this perspective early. And for those of you who are older, it's never too late to change your paradigm about this. I know the appeal of a comfortable, easy, leisurely life. I still find that life appealing. There's an appeal to that for me. But that is not God's end game for you and for me. And until we learn to embrace trials and suffering as part of God's good work in our lives, then as we get older and we feel the heaviness of life more and more, we'll only start to see more and more of life as an obstacle, as a tangent, as an inconvenience. We'll spend more and more time trying to get back to this tiny fraction of life that is free from circumstances of trial and suffering. Instead of that, instead of wasting our lives trying to get back to this tiny fraction where those things don't exist, we learn instead, we must learn, to embrace trial. That it's God doing these good things through trial to bring us to wholeness and maturity. 
Only then will we be able to count it all joy. Second, let's talk about wisdom for trials. In verse 5, James begins to talk about wisdom. But it's very connected to what he's been saying about trials. Verse 4 ends by saying that we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then verse 5 picks it up by saying, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. James essentially is saying here that someday, through your trials, God is going to make you mature and complete. But today is not that day. You do lack something. And the main thing that you lack is wisdom. A professor at Covenant Seminary named Dan Doriani said it this way, If you want to lack nothing, then the one thing you better not lack is wisdom. Because it is only by wisdom that you will be able to see the point of trial. That is the only way you will be able to learn what God would have you see. So we need wisdom for a million different reasons. We need wisdom for a million different decisions in our lives. But we especially need wisdom in order to gain this critical perspective about the purpose of trials. And the beautiful thing is that God invites us, it's actually stronger than that, He commands us to ask Him for the wisdom we lack and assures us that He will give the wisdom to us both generously and without reproach. Have any of you ever given something or received something with reproach? I uh, did this to one of my daughters just the other day. Uh, She spilled her water, as toddlers are inclined to do. And I was impatient, uh, and I was frustrated as as I was cleaning it up. And as I'm cleaning it up, uh, she asked for some more water. She asked for another cup of water. It's a fair request. So I got her another cup, and as I gave it to her, I don't remember my exact words, but I said something like, if you'd only been more careful with the first glass, you wouldn't have had to ask me for another one. That's giving with reproach. It's making people feel small or rebuked or shamed for asking. But the God we worship, James says, gives wisdom without reproach. It's his very nature and character to give us the wisdom that we lack and that we ask him for. So there's no shame in asking. The way James writes this, actually, the assumption is that you and I do lack wisdom. And God is not going to condemn us for our lack of it. So here's what this means. Here's the beautiful reality of what this means. There's no danger in admitting that you lack wisdom. The danger is pretending that you have wisdom when you don't. The danger is pretending that you know what you're doing when you don't. The danger is pretending that you know exactly what God is doing in the midst of your trial or in the midst of someone else's trial when you don't. Christian, you aren't expected to be an expert at life or to secure everything that you need for yourself. You are expected to ask God for what you need so that he might generously give it to you. We are not, praise God, left to ourselves to endure the process of becoming complete and mature. Centuries ago, St. Augustine prayed these words. He said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Command what you will and grant what you 
command. God, through the words of James in this letter, commands you to count all of your trials as joy. And God grants wisdom so that you might begin to perceive how your trials might be the source of that very joy. Now the one qualifier here is that we ask in faith and not in doubt. And here again is an important distinction. When James says here to ask with no doubt, it's not a condemnation of the wrestling with doubt that you will almost certainly encounter in the course of the Christian life. What he's warning us against is what he says in verse 8, double-mindedness, where you sit on the fence about God where you try to keep your foot in a couple different camps simultaneously, where you, for example, try this whole Jesus thing out, but all the while have a backup plan in case that doesn't go the way that you want it to. For Christians, there's a form of doubt that has integrity and a form of doubt that has no integrity. Doubt with integrity is an honest struggle with God. Uh, An honest struggle with God about who He is, about why things are the way they are. On the other hand, doubt with no integrity is hedging your bets. It's fence-riding. It's double-mindedness. So if you want the wisdom that you lack, if you want wisdom to understand and endure trials in your life, you have to get off the fence and you have to put all of your eggs in the basket where God is the generous and without reproach giver of wisdom. Don't look for wisdom in God and something else, or God plus something else. Don't look to God for some wisdom and then get some wisdom from other sources elsewhere. Bring your request, bring even your integrity-filled doubts to Him, to God, and ask for the wisdom that you lack. Third, let's talk about the trials of poverty and wealth. Verse 9 seems like James has completely switched topics again. But really, this is a test case for what he's been talking about up to this point. Over the course of his letter, he's going to talk a lot about wealth and poverty. We'll look at that more uh, in January in our month of mercy and justice issues. But in chapter 1, he uses poverty and wealth as a test case for different kinds of trial. Poverty and wealth are their own trials. Trials that you and I will need wisdom for because they require very different responses. We need wisdom to know not only how to respond, but also in each of those trials what to boast in. Poverty, of course, is the more obvious trial, at least from an external standpoint. It's a trial of a lack of material goods, a lack of provisions, a lack of comforts. And the temptation in poverty is to think that God has forgotten you. You're then perhaps tempted to take matters into your own hands and steal or take advantage of others in order to provide for yourself. Counterintuitively, James says that those who find themselves in this lowly place of poverty should boast in their exaltation. Boast that your, that your material need, that their material need keeps you dependent and therefore near to the God who is the giver of good gifts. Now on the other hand, wealth is a less obvious but also very real trial. Now I don't recommend that you patronize other people, like for example, go into downtown Harrisburg and talk to a homeless person and tell them about all the trials you're experiencing in your upper middle class life. 
that, that will only come across as condescending and patronizing. About 20 years ago, Ben Folds uh, had some lyrics in a song that said, Y'all don't know what it's like being male, middle class, and white. That's what you will sound like if you go into uh, downtown Harrisburg, talk to a homeless person, and talk about your trials of upper middle class life. It's perhaps, perhaps less obvious, but there are all around you, in this room, outside of this room, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, pain-stricken, broken, miserable, wealthy people. Many of them feeling the additional burden, the additional pressure and responsibility to do something productive and significant with their wealth. And more importantly, as we see not only in James but throughout Scripture, wealth is a constant hazard to spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness. Why? Because while the temptation of poverty is to think that God has forgotten you, the temptation of wealth is to forget God. If you're poor, and you're prone to think that God has forgotten you, you're still paying mind to God. You're still attentive to God, even though you think He's forgotten you. But if you're wealthy, you're tempted to forget God altogether, to pay no mind to Him at all. The more money you have, the easier it is to think that you have control over your life and circumstances. The harder it is to seek first the kingdom of God, to truly trust God. The harder it is to not just talk about faith, but to live a life of faith and to be prepared to stand up under the testing of it. So wealthy people should boast not in their wealth, but in their humiliation. They should boast when something happens that reminds them that they are not in control, that in the ultimate eternal scheme of things, their wealth means very little. James quotes Isaiah's metaphor here about how brief and fragile life and all of its circumstances are. The grass withers and the flower Fades, And his point there is, say, is to say, so will your wealth. But what won't fade, verse 12, is the crown of life, which is the reward for steadfastness in the midst of trial. Now in a room full of people who almost to a person will fit James's definition of a wealthy person, of a rich person, what I would call you to is to learn to boast in your humiliation. Learn to boast in your humiliation. Ask for wisdom to endure trials and to see how those trials are producing the real treasure, the real things of value in your life. Boast in your trials. Because unlike your wealth, the steadfastness and maturity and wholeness that those trials produce, those are things that you can take with you. Those are things that will reach their perfection when this life comes to an end. One other thing to mention here. Back in verse 2, James says to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. We would all do well to learn from those two words. Various kinds. Various kinds. James is not making a judgment about some trials here being valid and other trials being invalid. And nor should we. Not everyone will experience the same kind of trials in life. And James's point here is not to judge some trials as actual trials and other trials as non-trials. His point here is to say, regardless of the kinds of trials that you face in your life, count them all joy. We need that as a corrective from two equally damaging errors. On the one hand, 
Some of us are prone to act like there's a competition where the hardest life wins. And so if that's you, you're prone to complain, to be dramatic, to exaggerate, to highlight every possible way that you're experiencing trial and suffering in your life as though you constantly need to prove that your life is more difficult than the person sitting next to you. That's one error. On the other side, some of us are prone to downplay our suffering and trials so much so that we actually begin to despise the very work that God is doing in the midst of them. Perspective is a good thing. It's good to recognize that your life might not be as difficult as someone else's. But, don't write off or minimize your trials or someone else's trials because other people are going through different or apparently worse trials. Maybe they are. And maybe the trial that you're facing shouldn't be affecting you the way that it's affecting you. But guess what? It is affecting you that way. And God is right there in the midst of that, wanting to produce steadfastness that leads to perfection and completion. So please, I plead with you, don't write off, don't despise the work that God is doing in your life, in your trials, in the name of perspective. Fourth and finally, let's talk about trials versus temptation. Trials versus temptation. There's a nuanced uh, but incredibly important distinction in this passage, and it's this. God is the author of trial, but he is not the source of temptation. God is the author of trial, but he is not the source of temptation. This is one of the, the great mysteries of our faith. That God is completely sovereign. That God is completely in control of all things. And at the very same time, Human beings are completely responsible for their actions. Put that together for me in a way that's completely logical, and I'll call you reductionistic. There's just not a way to put that together in a way that's completely logical without being reductionistic. It's critical to uphold, instead, both of these things, God's sovereignty and humanity's responsibility. And that's exactly what James is doing in this text. Trial comes directly From God, it is part of God's good work producing steadfastness that leads to perfection and completion. But temptation to sin in the midst of trial comes from what? From our own corrupted desire. From the kind of desires in our lives that are shaped by the same lenses that view suffering and trials as obstacles to joy, rather than the path by which God is shedding us of our sinfulness and making us more like Christ. So when God authors trial in your life, He's not baiting you to sin. Think of it this way. It's not entrapment. It's exposure. When God authors trials in your life, it's not entrapment. It's exposure. It's revealing those places in our lives where our corrupted desires would unchecked give birth to sin and grow to bring forth death. Trials reveal those things so that God might refine And because we're prone to believe lies about the nature and character of God, especially at points like this. In verse 16, James begins to plead with his listeners. He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Remember who God is. He isn't trying to trip you up. He's trying to save you. He's not the giver of temptation. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift, even when that gift is trial. 
And even when it doesn't feel like a gift at all, and he'd rather give it back. He's not trying to trip you up. He's trying to save you. And if all of that sounds unfair, if all of this sounds like God gets all of the credit for the good stuff, but none of the blame for the bad, then don't miss verse 18. Though God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, though it's my corrupted desire that brings about sin and death, it is God who takes on the responsibility to right the wrongs. Not because he had to, but as James says, by his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth. And James there is referring to a birth, but not your natural birth. It's being born again to a living hope. It's your salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. James is talking about your redemption. And not only yours, but God's reconciliation of all things to himself through Jesus. We are the first fruits, a kind of redemptive down payment that God in Christ will make all things new. It's not God's fault that creation is marred by sin and death. It's my fault. But out of his own will, God will bring us forth by the word of truth, and he will use trial to do it. As you find yourself in more contemplative moments today, or tomorrow, or over these next few days, reflect on these things. What trials have you endured in 2017? What trials might you be about to step into in 2018? Or what trials are just going to continue right on through from 2017 to 2018? How have you seen God use trial in your life to bring steadfastness and maturity and wholeness? I'll close this morning with the lyrics from a 240-year-old hymn by John Newton. It's titled, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. May the words of this song help you to close out 2017 and begin 2018 asking for the wisdom that you lack, the wisdom that will help you to perceive the purpose of your trials and truly to count them all joy. This is, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow by John Newton. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy 
that thou mayst find thy all in me. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge and admit that we lack wisdom and that we need it so that we might have this perspective on our trials to understand that you, through trial, through hardship, through suffering, are producing steadfastness that leads to perfection and completion that we might lack in nothing. Help us to know that confidently. Help us to believe that. Grant us the wisdom that we lack. We pray that as we reflect on this year that is ending and the new year that is beginning, you would help us to see all of our lives through these lenses where you are the God who is the giver of every good and perfect gift and where you, though it was not your responsibility, took responsibility for the corruption and the fracture of my sin, of our sin, and in Christ have made us new and are making all things new. As we come to the table, would you remind us again of the cost of our redemption? And would you remind us that through the work of Christ you have paid that cost in full? And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.